you'd go ahead and turn to Acts 5, Acts chapter 5, that'll be where we kind of start our lesson, but not where we finish or spend the majority of our time together. Again, that's Acts chapter 5. I've been thinking about something kind of recently. Um, I know I told you a lot of you guys that I was um, planning on doing a sermon on anxiety and on stress, but um, I was kind of thinking about a lot of things, especially with regard to my work. And another thing hopped up in my mind, and so um, I spent a lot of this weekend um, kind of working on this, and it's something that's been really been sitting in my heart a lot. And the idea uh, this, this evening that we're going to be talking about is this idea of secret sin. And if you think about Acts 5, we have this couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And starting in verse 1, it says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourselves part of the proceeds of the land? And while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his, his last. And great fear came upon all that heard of this. We see later on that um, Sapphira dies as well when she hears of this. And so essentially, again, just paraphrasing what's going on, they conspired in themselves to sell this large portion of land, and they kept some money back, and they lied about it. And they died because of that. But here's what I want us to realize. This couple not only said to this whole church that they were giving everything that they had, but in reality, they held something back. And so I want us to take that example of a financial decision that they made, but move beyond the financial principle into a more holistic application of that. Now, there's nothing wrong with what they did as far as just the keeping back of some of the money, but what's wrong is that they lied about it. And I fear too often that in the same way many individuals, whether they're married or whether they're um, just not married, you know, single, they conspire and say to other people that they're giving everything, they're all in, they're 100%, when really they're keeping something back in their own hearts. It looks like they're all in, they said that they're all in to everybody else, but when it comes down to it, it's a lie, and they know about it. So I want us to take some time this afternoon to ex examine in our own hearts... Um, this concept, and think of ways in which we can be more all-in to God's purposes for our lives. And one thing I think that gets constantly in the way of people giving their all to God is this idea of slothfulness. The sloth is kind of a gruesome picture. You think about going to the zoo and kids getting really excited about it. The last creature that they're thinking about getting excited about is a sloth. And maybe that's because of multiple reasons, but I think one reason is that whenever you go to the zoo, you want to connect with an animal. You want to look through that two inches of glass and see the line in the face and make a goofy smile or something like that and see what the line reaction is to that. Or, you know, do some sort of weird sign language to a monkey and see him, you know, trying to communicate back to you. But for the sloth, he's completely in his own world. He's this hairy, nasty creature that has long legs and arms and he has these stretched out yellow claws and this goofy smile and he just hugs a tree. Doesn't care what you're doing, doesn't care what you're thinking about. He's minding his own business, not bothered by anything, and he's tuned into nothing but his own little world. And we think about that picture of the earthly sloth, but the Bible paints kind of a similar unflattering picture of the sloth in our lives. And you think about these biblical images and slogans that you hear that are unforgettable. If a man doesn't work, neither should he eat. Exactly. Second Thessalonians 3.10. What about go to the blank, O sluggard? Consider her ways. Go to the ant, right? Proverbs 6, verse 6. Or we think about Proverbs 26, 14, which talks about the sluggard doesn't get out of bed. He flops like a wet fish or rusty door hinge. What about the next verse after that? It says, lazy people take food in their hand, but don't even lift it to their mouths. 
Also, Ecclesiastes 10, verse 18, laziness leads to a sagging roof. Idleness leads to a leaky house. These are common pictures of sloth, just flat, idle, and unresponsive, and hopefully undesirous to us. This idea of this slothful lifestyle devastates the whole of someone's life, and it leads to this slow and subtle, secret kind of decrepitation. And it hides, I think, behind two misleading stereotypes. And the more and more that I studied behind this, the more I I found things that I didn't really realize about sloth. So talking about the secrets of slothfulness, the first one is that slothfulness is a sin of desire. You'd think, uh, when thinking about someone that's slothful, it's a sin of not desiring or just being completely apathetic. But the Bible shows us in a couple passages that it's the exact opposite. Proverbs 13, verse 4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. And again, in Proverbs 21, verses 25 and 26, it starts out by saying, The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long, he craves and craves. So all of us are a craving, desiring, and a wanting people. And this is no less true of the sloth. He's craving something, but it's something different than the rest of us are, or supposed to be craving. The second kind of thing that I want to clarify is not only the slothfulness is a sin of desire, but the slothfulness thrives in busyness. This shocking manifestation of sloth is what I refer to as the secret aspect of sloth. That's why our lesson is entitled Secret Sin. Because a slothful individual may live a very busy lifestyle, but he just does enough to get things done so that he can go back to enjoying his comforts. Duties are what he performs, but comforts are what he is really craving. And the secret sloth lives in his routine of a fog and goes about kind of sleepwalking between his days and just living for getting to the weekend. There's a couple uh, quotes that I found on on this idea of slothfulness being this, this kind of mixing of being lazy but then also busy. The first is by this man named Diedrich Bucher, who says, Sloth is not to be confused with laziness. A slothful man may be very a very busy man. He is a man who goes through the motions, who flies on automatic pilot. Like a man with a bad head cold, he has mostly lost his sense of taste and smell. And he goes on to say, people come and go, but through glazed eyes, he hardly notices them. He is letting things run their course. He is getting through his life. Another quote um, is by this man named Richard John Newhouse. And it says that evenings without number obliterated by television when describing this contemporary idea of slothfulness. That it's evenings without number obliterated by television. Evenings neither of entertainment nor of education, but a narcotic defense against time and duty. You see that his priority is not about working, it's not about being responsible, it's about being comforted. And this is sloth at its deadliest trying to preserve personal comforts through endless amusements. And I think it's something that we see a lot in our culture especially, but I think it's something that we even see in the church. This sloth is a a chronic quest for seeking the worldly comforts that alleviates our boredom. Boredom with God, boredom with our church, boredom with people, boredom with our lives. And is doing things, again, that give us a narcotic defense against time and duty. The most common species of slothfulness, I think, is this lazy busyness. Not so much the people that just do nothing all day, but the people who work just enough to get by. They have a full schedule endured in physical haze. They begrudge interruptions. They hate seeing needy people. And they're driven by this craving for comfort. One of the ways in which I think we see this lazy, busy mindset is in our own perspectives. I frequently find myself thinking that there are only two ways to live. Either serving God or not serving God. And it's that clear cut. 
But it's life-changing when you realize that there are more than there is more than one way to be lost. We think about the first way, which is the typical way that we think of someone as being rejecting God or just being flatright disobedient. And these individuals who reject God simply think that he leaves me alone and I can do whatever I want to. But there's also another way to be lost that I think is hidden in this, this slothful mindset. That you can obey God, and I put that in quotes, you can obey God and still be lost. You can be doing all of these great things in his name, but if you're obeying for the wrong reasons, you're still living for yourself. If you're obeying just because you want to you know, fulfill these little things that God asks you to do so that he'll leave you alone after you do a handful of his religious activities. And this type of disobedience... I think is so much more common for a form of lostness that we see that obedience is not a way that we can connect with God, but it's just protecting ourselves from God being too harsh on us and from God messing with whatever view we think of the good life we have. Um, this can be summarized in the statement, I just follow some rules here and there, and then I've got God in a box, and I don't have to let him get anywhere else in my life. As long as I do a few things to keep him happy, um, I don't have to do the rest of the things that he's asking me to do. And so we think about defining these, or I guess clarifying these two things that we've talked about. That um, sloth is not only a sin of desire, but that it thrives in busyness. And we arrive to this conclusion of defining sloth, which is that sloth is a craving for personal comfort at all costs. And we see that it's very costly. The first one that I accidentally put up early is that slothfulness is a sin of desire. It thrives in busyness, and sloth will cost you joy in God in your daily routines. Sloth will blind you to how God designed vocation as a means for you to love other people. Instead of using your job as a joy to you to help other people, it becomes something that's a hassle, that you have to serve other people and think about other people instead. Sloth will blind you to the needs that you can fill because you're too preoccupied with what you need. Sloth will cost you your love for the local church because not only do you see the people and the needs around you, but you just see what the church is not giving to you or what you need from the church. Sloth will dull you with endless amusements. Sloth will blind you in your urgent need for Christ. Sloth will close your eyes to the wonder and beauty of Jesus. It will mute your worship. It will rob you of true leisure and refreshment. And lastly, sloth will kill your richest joys. We see that sloth comes at such a high cost and essentially, sloth is defined as a comfort control freak. But we're thankful because there's hope for people who are slothful, right? That's what salvation is all about, is that we can be freed from these sinful tendencies in our hearts. And we have hope because God hates the sloth more than we do. So the lie that sloth tells is that all things should work together for our comfort. But we remember from passages like Romans 8.28 that all things work together for our good. Or that God works everything together for our good. And there's a huge difference there. One is being comforted, but the other is being made comfortable. And we know that God is not in the make business of making us comfortable in the sense that a lot of the world thinks of comfortable. He wants us to be comfortable and that we are eternally secure in him. Not so much that our everyday um, needs that we think that we need are being met. Um, so in love, God will remove the comforts from our lives. Like we talked about this morning which is the essence of trials. And when we get overly comfortable with something, we start to sink into a spiritual slumber. And that's when God creates this lightning from the sky, essentially, and our comfort is taken away and we're jolted back to spiritual alertness. And through trials, God says, I love you enough to remove your comforts that you crave to make room for the joy in, of Christ that you need in your heart. We see here that God is in control, giving us things that we need that help our hearts, and that's what gives us comfort. 
not the things that we see as comfortable for us. So what's nice is that um, sloth is something that can easily be fixed if we're willing to be accountable with other people and realize that God is in control and is the ultimate comforter, not ourselves. So a couple of applications that I want to focus on is how can we be more productive and avoid this mindset of sloth in our own hearts? Um, the first of which is make an extra effort to find where you can contribute significantly. I think this is not only something that we can think about in our home life, but also in our work life for those of you who work, or even in, especially in the church, um, to think of ways that we can contribute significantly. Instead of looking for ways to avoid involvement, it's helpful to look for ways that we can contribute meaningfully in the areas of our life that we find ourselves. It doesn't have to be something big or something grandiose, but it can be something that's small or just something, as long as you're doing something to contribute meaningfully. Um, and, and one of the things that I found on the internet said that you can look where God is at work and join him in that labor. Look where God, where God needs to work and help him in that area. Second thing we can do to avoid uh, slothfulness and to be more productive is that we can be honest with ourselves about areas of our life where we are out of balance. This is something that I think I see in my life a lot where I you know, have times where I spend a ton of effort and energy into work and then I neglect you know, doing my Bible lesson as often or things like that or neglect serving people at church or sometimes where I'm completely devoted to people at church but then I forget about the people that I work with or my family and that I need to be calling them and checking up on them and seeing how I can serve them. Um, and it's so, it's so difficult um, to balance all the areas of our life out and figure out ways that we can avoid slothfulness in every single area of our lives. I think it's very easy to be slothful in maybe a certain sector of our lives, but be hardworking in the rest of our aspects of our lives. And so we need to have regular checkups with our own heart. We can ask other people to help us to see those things, you know, especially for myself. I find myself asking, you know, my parents, what do you need? I ask my girlfriend, what does she need? I ask, you know, people at church here, what do you need? Or what can I do to be better for you? And so it's helpful to have these regular checkups to ask somebody else and maybe pray about it with them or just pray about it in your own heart, ways in which you can be more productive in every aspect of your life. The next thing or the final thing, I guess, that for application points is that we should work with enthusiasm. Instead of viewing our responsibilities as a necessary evil, we should view them as a glorious opportunity to God to use us to do something significant in the lives of other people. Um, if you would turn to Hebrews 12, this is something that I think is kind of overlooked in this passage. But after giving the Hall of Fame of Faith and talking about all these amazing people, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking not to these people that we read about in, verse, in chapter 11, we consider them, but we look and fix our eyes to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We need to work with enthusiasm and have joy in our hearts for the, the duties and responsibilities that we see ourselves facing because that is a reflection of the way that God treats us. He finds joy in the hardest work and the sacrificial work that he did for us. And we should find joy in sacrificing for other people as well. And in being productive um, citizens, not only of the kingdom, but of this, this nation that we live in as well. Um, we all love people who love their jobs. Um, and this is one of the reasons why I particularly have been thinking about this recently is that I've recently been kind of promoted in my work atmosphere as a room leader, which is essentially that I get to manage all of the different caregivers and things like that that work in the room that I'm in. And you can really tell quite quickly who loves their job and who doesn't. The ones that are lazy are the ones who are typically not involved with the kids who, you know, 
see something going on or maybe are too wrapped up in themselves to not see something going on and they let something slide. And in working with special needs and medically fragile children, this is a life or death situation. There are a lot of times where if you're not paying attention, a kid will be seizing in a corner and you have no long how long you have no idea how long you've been seizing and those minutes are crucial to finding out what they need. But how much more important is it to work with enthusiasm and to be a person who loves working in the church? We may not see a person exactly seizing in a corner or things like that, but there are spiritual illnesses that are alive and well in our church. I think we all know that. We pray for a lot of these people every week, and we think about them and and talk about them together, not in a gossipy way, but figuring out how we can help them more. And I think it's easy for us to not love our church job and the way that we can serve other people and help them. But we need to work with enthusiasm just as our Lord worked with enthusiasm for our salvation on the cross and to helping us to be reconciled to God. In the same way, we need to have joy in the things that we do to sacrifice for this church. And we need to strive to become those people who reveal the joy of the Lord in our work, not only in our church here, but also in our families, in our uh, you know, secular relationships, and especially in our jobs. Uh, one verse that has really stuck through my mind um, when going through this is, Um, A verse that I found in high school, and I still remember how impactful it was to me. It's from Jeremiah 48, verse 10. It says, Cursed is he who does the will of the Lord with slackness. And again, I think that highlights this idea that we talked about earlier of there's two kinds of disobedience. You can obey the will of the Lord, and you can do what God asks you to do, but you can also do what God asks you to do with slackness, with slothfulness, with laziness. And so the application, I guess the, the invitation this evening is are you more like Ananias and Sapphira who are telling everybody that you're all in, you're doing everything that you can, you're 100%, but you're holding something back? Or are you like Caleb? If you would turn to Joshua 14. Joshua, actually, yeah, Joshua chapter 14. I have Numbers 14 on the screen, but it's Joshua chapter 14. I think Numbers 14 is when he initially, um, when Caleb speaks forth about um, uh, the land of Canaan and says this is a good land. Um, But in Joshua 14, starting in verse 6, it says, The people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh said, the Kenizzite said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, Kadesh concerning you and me. In verse 7 it says, I was 40 years old when Moses the servant of the Lord sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said. These 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was the day Moses sent me. My strength is now as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So again, I'm trying to paint this contrast between Ananias and Sapphira, who said that they were all in, said that they were 100%, but they were holding something back. And we see Caleb here, who has been 100% from the beginning. In Numbers 14, he's the guy that's the first person to step up and say, Now wait a minute, we can take this piece of land. And in Joshua 14, he's the man who says... I'm 85 years old, but I still have a sword, and I'm ready to fight. And so my question for you is, are you Ananias and Sapphira, are you Caleb? Someone that's slothful, are you zealously working for the Lord and working for ways in which you can fulfill his purpose for your life and find ways in which you can serve him? Um, 
If that's something that's on your heart or something you need to work through, um, I pray that uh, you come forward and we can pray for you. Or even if it's something that is more of a private matter, I pray that you talk to somebody, reach out to them, and um, develop some sort of plan and strategy for battling this lawfulness in your lives. If there's anything we can do for you, I'd ask that you come forward now as we stand and sing.